Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. So welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast. Uh, my name is Daryl Mathers and I'm flying solo uh, on this edition of the COVID-19 podcast. Um, Chris Bovey, my co-host, is sitting this one out, but we're going to uh, move forward. And before we do, like we have been doing throughout the pandemic, just giving a shout out to uh, all the essential workers in Ontario, all the certainly all the frontline healthcare workers uh, in Ontario who are fighting through COVID-19 and, and doing what they can to to make our communities safe again. And a special shout out to our folks at Ontario Shores uh, who may not get the, the same type of attention uh, at this time, given they're not an acute care hospital, but our mental health patients um, who live in our hospital, who receive 24-hour care, um, they require uh, our staff to be dedicated and committed and and put themselves uh, kind of in the line of fire, so to speak, um, during this time. So shout out to, to everybody there. So as we kind of move forward uh, with, you know, the, in the pandemic and in our work in Ontario Shores, uh, we're trying to keep conversations going, you know, around mental health as it relates to the pandemic, but just in general to inspire hope and, and to, to make connections with people. And, and frankly, um, Netflix is uh, running a little dry. We need to put, a, put content out there because there's a real shortage of television and other, you know, sports and everything else like that. So hopefully uh, people can enjoy this. So one of the things we're going to talk today about is sports, actually, and mental health and first responders and covers uh, almost a, a little bit of everything uh, with our next guest, uh, Kendra Fisher. Kendra is a little bit of everything. If you read her Twitter profile, um, it's pretty uh, it's pretty daunting. Uh, she's a former athlete, mental health speaker, uh, mental health advocate, uh, current firefighter. Uh, there's probably a few other things I'm missing, but uh, thank you, Kendra, for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, as we get into kind of the conversation here, um, first of all, how are you doing, um, you as a person and with your family during this uh, significant change in your in your life? Yeah, I uh, I feel like I have as many answers to that as I do uh, pieces of my Twitter profile. Uh, depends what's depends what my day is full of that day. Um, overall, uh, I'll say I'm well. Um, I'm pretty. Uh, diligent about kind of not getting complacent on my, my mental health and making sure I stay healthy. Um, but I'd be lying if I, I didn't admit that this is overwhelming and stressful and scary. And um, there's just so much uh, kind of happening and evolving every day and, and kind of all parts of my life, whether it's home with my family at, at the fire station with, uh, with my mental health uh, organization. Uh, there's a lot of facets that are kind of moving here. So there's a lot going on. During this time, I think we're at the point in the evolution of the pandemic where 
there is a big focus on mental health. Uh, you see just in the media, people are starting to recognize that this is going to have a significant toll on people's mental health, self-isolation. It's not natural for humans to, to live like this. Um, and I think the one thing that's kind of missing uh, in terms of maybe a conversation in the media and maybe in what our political leaders are addressing as well is that this is, I would think, fairly significant for somebody with existing mental health issues, right? Like mm -hmm. somebody that, that already has to worry about anxiety and depression or whatever the case may be. This, a, a change like this, um, the behaviors that we've had to undertake, like this would be a significant uh, undertaking for somebody with those or pre-existing conditions. It certainly. And I mean, I think that there's so many levels of that too, that kind of add to the complexity. I know that Whenever I'm sharing my story, one of the things that I always advocate for is not isolating. I advocate for staying connected and staying supported and, and staying social and, and not allowing yourself to be in a position where um, you're just kind of dealing with it all yourself. So we've really had to get creative in our thinking in terms of um, how do we support people right now who are isolated, but beyond isolated, dealing with the mental health crisis, that this is absolutely, um, you know, I don't want to say starting, because for some of these people, they were already in crisis. But it, I, I wholeheartedly agree that there's a, another pandemic that's crawling out of the existing COVID pandemic. And that is that, um, you know, we're seeing an increase in suicide, we're seeing an increase in attempts, we're seeing, um, a lot of, of behaviors to suggest that people are struggling with this and we need to find ways to support them uh, creatively, you know, on, online and using tools that we have and creating new tools, really, um, as, as well as making sure that we're finding ways to keep them connected because it's, uh, it's a scary time for them. When it comes to your own personal mental health and you know, what you speak about and, and the advocacy work that you do. Can you give people that may not be familiar, just, you know, kind of a, where your mental health journey kind of began and, uh, you know, how yeah. it's kind of evolved over time? Yeah, well, my journey where it began um, in the story that I share was in my late teens is when I kind of uh, hit bottom, lost, lost control, didn't have that ability to function on a daily basis anymore. Um, I was actually at a Team Canada camp when it kind of came to a pinnacle. And, and uh, the day I made Team Canada's hockey team, I was forced to walk away uh, within a, a, a shorter period of time after that. I had been trying to find out what was going on for about a year prior to that without any diagnosis. And uh, after that camp, I was, I was put in contact with a psychologist and ultimately um, was diagnosed with depression, anxiety, panic disorder, uh, generalized anxiety, OCD, and agoraphobia. Uh, I didn't leave my apartment for five years following that diagnosis. Um, and uh, spent uh, five years really kind of just going through the motions of existing with, with what I had been told. I didn't really understand it uh, as a, as a world-class athlete. I, I didn't really, I, I didn't, accept it um, until it just controlled every facet of my life. And I got to a place where after five years, it was, uh, you know, I can't do this anymore. I didn't want that life. I didn't, 
it, it wasn't a life. I didn't, I didn't want to exist like that anymore. Um, and I realized I could either quit or figure it out. And uh, I spent the next five years really uh, on a, a very self-led journey and a self-advocated journey to figure out what I was dealing with and learn all of the different uh, supports that are available and, and different tools and coping strategies I could put in play. Uh, and I'd say uh, that was about a five-year journey as well. And uh, since then, I've spent the last 10 years now traveling the world, sharing my journey and uh, uh, trying to help others to kind of manage how to live with it, uh, access tools in their areas. Um, I started a mental health organization that implements uh, rural kind of mental health strategies in communities that don't have access to um, facilities like Ontario Shores or, or some of the bigger centers. Um, and yeah, so I've, I've kind of gone somewhat full circle in my my journey with mental health and and now i mean you know it's something i'll always live with i live with depression i live with anxiety i live with panic um i'm very fortunate that both my ocd and my agoraphobia are uh, directly tied to my anxiety and panic so as long as those are stable i tend to not be as affected by those um but surely i mean this is this has been a challenge it's it's kind of that how do you manage? And I mean, I had a very uh, developed routine in how I stay healthy. And I've had to adjust that because I can't go to the gym now and I can't go, you know, meet up with supports if I need to. And I can't, uh, there's just a lot of change. You know, I can't do the simple things that I used to be able to do to gain that mindfulness and keep that perspective on my day-to-day recovery. So it's been um, a bit of a task. And then additionally, I mean, I've kind of taken on a lot more of a workload um, in trying to support others because, uh, you know, as as is obvious, there's a lot of people struggling. And over the past 10 years, I've developed a, a rather large community following in terms of people that I try to support through this. So uh, trying to stay present there as well. How have you adjusted your routine to manage your health during this time of, you know, a lot of Zoom meetings or face-to-face, virtually, like a lot of those type of uh, technology-based solutions? Yeah. um, Yeah, which is, again, it it feels so um, backwards to my thinking even. I mean, I always advocated for get out, be social one-on-one, you know, like, or, or in a group of people. But I've never been a huge fan of um, technology as the be all and say all simply because I think we can hide behind it. I think that, you know, I think texting is kind of the bane of of effective conversation and effective communication when it comes to mental health. Because quite frankly, if I'm on text, I can say whatever I want and you're never going to know any better. so yeah, I've been relying heavily on kind of the video tools, especially, um, and, and also good old fashioned phone time. I mean, <laughs> yep. Yeah, like we've gotten to this place in our world where it almost feels rude to just pick up a phone and call somebody without kind of preempting it with a text that says, is it okay if I call? Um, so I'm trying to kind of bring back the old school, just reaching out and checking in on people and, and catching them in their honesty in, in those moments. Um, and, you know, it's 
there's a lot to be said for being able to hear somebody's voice. And there's a lot to be said for being able to read people's, you know, facial cues or, or having that, at least having that assurance that they're giving you their attention. I mean, how often do we see people's communications with one another? And, and even on these, sometimes it's horrible, you know, all of a sudden you look up on zoom and everybody on the screen's like this and you're like, okay, well, talking to myself right now. Um, but I think it's giving us the opportunity to at least make the best of what we have. Um, and so definitely that, definitely arranging actual social gatherings with people. I mean, arrange a coffee date, arrange a dinner date, you know, sit down, have a coffee with your friend, no different than you would in a restaurant and, and make those plans. Don't just, um, don't, don't chance it. Don't just kind of leave it up to, well, if I can make it work, I can make it work. Actually make the plans. I mean, mm. tonight I know for a fact, my wife has a coffee date with a buddy of hers and the kids are mine at seven o'clock. No different than if she went out to the, the local coffee shop and, and wasn't here. Um, and I think that that's important too, to make sure that we are feeling some semblance of purpose in our days. I think that we run the risk of just kind of complacently not getting changed in the morning, not making your bed, maybe get up, maybe don't, eating junk all day, not putting a lot into, you know, proper meals, not not allowing your day to be kind of assigned different tasks and, and give yourself a feeling of accomplishment at the end of the day because you've actually completed something. And it doesn't have to be earth shattering. It doesn't have to be profound. It can be as simple as my goal today is to shower, get dressed, make my bed, have three decent meals, not spend more than an hour or two on TV or, or video games or whatever you're vices, um, you know, practice mindfulness, practice deep breathing, connect with somebody, do something to get some fresh air. And if you're in a position where you can't get outside, open your window and sit by the window. I mean, there's just value in really trying to keep some semblance of your routine and your, um, your strategy. I mean, I've, I've also, I ordered gym equipment so I can work out in my basement. I've, you know, made sure that I'm building those things into my day and, and I, you know, make sure you get the right amount of sleep. It's so simple to just kind of let that go and, and, you know, stay up late watching movies and pass out when you want and wake up and sleep matters. I mean, we have to keep in mind the simple things and the basics that really affect our mental health and pay attention to that. Mm. just to your point about like making uh, time for each other virtually and your your wife's uh, coffee date at seven o'clock and when this first started uh on a personal note uh my friends of mine and i haven't talked to you in, you know in, a, in, in a, quite some time we don't live close uh together anymore and they sent me this link to do this video chat at like nine o'clock, like have a drink with us at nine o'clock virtually. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Right. Like, but because yeah. uh, it was, and it was early on in the pandemic. So I wasn't necessarily, um, you know, missing the world as much as I am right now. Yeah. But, you didn't uh, need it yet. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, we went on, I went, you know, like I'll go on. And I was, I was amazed about how, how little the platform actually meant. Um, we were connecting, yeah. like it might've taken like, Exactly. 10 minutes, 10 minutes for us to kind of 
adjust to kind of the environment. Yeah, yeah. And then it was yeah, yeah. As, as if we were, you know, wherever uh, in a more physical environment. So, and then, yeah, yeah. you know, that kind of, uh, I, on a personal level, that has been one of the surprising things about this whole thing is that it's worked. It's helped kept, you know, keep us, my wife and I connected to our friends on a weekly basis yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, family periodically. And um, it's surprising that uh, it's, it, it fills some of that void from my perspective, mm-hmm. fills some of that void that we're currently experiencing in the pandemic. I thought that was interesting. Well, I think it's so huge. I mean, and my friends, we did the same actually. And I remember the first time it was strange. It was, you know, I think we all spent the first half hour just playing with all the like little filters <laughs> and, you know, taking turns, putting yeah. on weird fedoras or changing our backgrounds. <laughs> yeah. And, but then once you get past that and you, and you get down to it, exactly that, that connection is possible. And I think that that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And we, like, it's, it's something now we look forward to Saturday night. We, we, you know, yeah. we get together with friends on, on zoom and yeah. it's uh, you know, I think we all have to manage our, our mental health at this time. And those are part of the things that, that we need oh, to absolutely. do. So, so moving a little bit, a little bit forward, um, you talked a lot about, uh, you know, your, your personal experience with mental health and, and how you've, you know, your, yep. your journey, kind of the journey you've been on and what you've been able to do. The advocacy work that you do, um, has there been anything more, how meaningful is that in your life, that your ability to connect with people who have an interest in mental health or have a need to? Uh... Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's huge. It's, it's become a huge part of who I am. Um, and what I do and what I identify with, I've always been somebody who's kind of always had the need to help others. It's always been at my core. Um, but it went beyond that for this for, with, with me. It was just kind of, I went through, you know, the the process of being diagnosed and the process of living through hell. And um, then really just kind of, clawing my way back and and getting myself to a place where I actually remember sitting there one day just thinking I made it like I I survived um and and then you do that work where you go back and you consider everything I mean you could have diagnosed me when I was five I mean if we're going to be real about it you look back and it's kind of you know how much of my life has this been how how much was there what was I what was I treading water through before it really took over um and for me it was this kind of shocking realization because i remember getting through to a point 10 years after diagnosis where i felt good like i felt i felt better than i ever had because now i knew um how to manage certain of you know kind of parts of my own disorders and, and my personality and my behaviors and and how they led to being more symptomatic with my mental illness versus you know, managing those things so that I wasn't experiencing debilitating symptoms. I wasn't having panic attacks every day. I wasn't feeling depressed all of the time. Um, and I think I remember in the beginning, the thing I was most proud of was that nobody knew. I had gotten through this just lying about why I disappeared. And, and I just kind of fell off the, the, the edge of the earth and nobody really knew why. Um, and that was important to me. I, I didn't identify well with being you know, a Team Canada level goalie to not being able to be in a room alone and not being able to leave my apartment. I, I couldn't explain that. I didn't want to. I found it degrading. I found it. I was ashamed of it. Um, 
and it unfortunately took uh, the suicide of Darren Richardson uh, at 14 years of age um, to kind of put me in a place where I had a whole new perspective. And that perspective was, I, I was part of the reason. I was part of, I was partly to blame. I was part of the silence. I was part of the the group of people who were successfully living with this, but doing so quietly because that better served me. I could continue to kind of be that great athlete and that outgoing person. And nobody had to know, nobody had to know the the truth of, you know, what the other parts of my day looked like or what the other 10 years of my life looked like. Um, and I just remember being shattered by that. I remember being completely shattered by the fact that I knew my silence was hurting others. And so I started sharing my journey and it was, it was very accidental. This, this wasn't, this wasn't my plan. I was supposed to be in the Olympics. I wasn't supposed to be, uh, this wasn't supposed to be what I was known for. Um, but then I found that every time I went into those rooms and every time I went into those organizations and every time I met with other athletes or first responders or veterans and, you know, healthcare professionals, every time I started having that conversation and understanding how desperate the needs, need was to understand and how desperate the need was to learn and educate and feel heard and feel accepted, um, it just it was mind blowing. And then it just kind of became this place where it's as cathartic for me as it is for anybody who comes to share that journey with me, um, you know, to not have to lie, to not have to hide, to not have to, uh, you know, put on a facade just for somebody else's sake. It, it's, uh, it's empowering. It, it puts you in a place where you can be a better version of yourself and people interact with that. People read that. Um, and so now it's a matter of, I can't not, I can't know what I know and not share that journey. I can't, I can't relate as easily and as well as I do to somebody who can't imagine making it to tomorrow. I can't have that knowledge and that, that emotion in me and not reach out and, and hopefully allow that person to find a way to tomorrow and start over and find that place where they can um, really understand that, you know, it takes work. I don't ever profess that this is simple. This is, this is a complex illness and it's complex to learn what routine is going to be the right routine for you. Um, but it's there, it exists. And if you allow people in and if you allow people to really truly experience that with you, I mean, not everybody can help you. I, I don't even profess that I can help everybody. But what I can do is in that moment when you're terrified to be alone because you don't feel safe, I can fill that space. I can be in that space. I can accept that that's uncomfortable and horrible. And if all you need me to do is sit on the other end of that couch and make sure that you're safe until that kind of level of crisis passes, I can do that. Anybody can do that if they're willing. And that's really what I want people to understand. This is a community, you know, this is a community approach. This is a, this is something that's going to require community support. It's a global crisis, mm -hmm. but what we can affect immediately within ourselves, everybody has that. And that's what it's become for me. I just, I can't, 
I can't know, I can't understand and not participate. That's a failure to me. The, I guess as a result of your, you know, your participation, your, your desire to be so upfront uh, and honest about your, your journey is that that's, you know, that's a huge part of your identity now, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you Google Kendra Fisher and um, <laughs> you, you eventually find out that you were, you know, a team Canada level a hockey, hockey goalie, right? <laughs> you, you know, and yeah. uh, somewhere um, down the line. Yes. And uh, so, I mean, <laughs> that's, I mean, people, people live with having an identity like that, or like, you know, it's, it's much like your other identity of being a firefighter. Uh, that's, a, you know, people will identify you as being a, a firefighter or a teacher or a police officer it becomes a huge part of your identity. So, yeah. but being, being a first responder mm-hmm. in, you know, in a profession that um, certainly in, you know, in TV and film and other places doesn't necessarily have a, a reputation of being open and accepting environment. I mean, I think it's obviously made strides over the decades, but certainly, certainly not at the forefront of acceptance uh, in people's minds, whether that's right or wrong. Um, when you have, when you're so open about your, you know, your journey with mental illness and in a profession like that, has that, like, I just wonder what that's been like for you. Um, yeah, so I mean, it was kind of unique for me because I started working with first responders um, from a mental health capacity before I became a first responder. So, I mean, I started this journey and I had the opportunity to, you know, work with the ex-minister of labor, Kevin Flynn, on, um, you know, his strategies around PTSD summits for first responders. Um, I was one of the uh, faces of mental illness or mental health for Canada the one year. So I had the opportunity to go to Ottawa and meet with the veterans groups and the RCMP and and really learn a lot about their strategies and such. And then I guess just because of my, you know, when you do go down that uh, Google hole and and find out that I was an athlete, um, that that's a draw for some people. And And so, I mean, I've always kind of been people reach out behind the scenes, people reach out quietly, people want help quietly, they, they don't want anybody else to know, because there's a lot of risk when it comes to first response, when it comes to any kind of vocation that is typically associated with that uh, untouchable complex that they're not going to be affected. You know, you look at healthcare workers today who are in there every day seeing the worst and you have some people's opinions well but this is what you signed up for and then you have that complete failure which is but they're still just people and um i feel like that's kind of we've come a ways with first response i mean when i started it was very much uh you know it was being implemented from a government level and it was something that they had to kind of say we expect you to have a a peer support strategy. We expect you to have a critical response team. We expect you to have some form of um, mental health support for your members. And so it was kind of in the beginning, I remember sitting in on some of those summits and you would hear some of the leadership in in first response. um, And it was very much, well, you know, we don't want to deal with this in our membership. How do we wean this out? Is, are we allowed to ask this in an interview? And I just remember being shocked and and appalled because obviously, no, you can't ask that in an interview. 
Um, but beyond that, I mean, statistically, if you consider how many people in their membership were already dealing with it and already suffering, um, that was the part that really got me because it was a matter of if leadership is asking those questions out loud and their membership can hear that, do you think their membership's ever going to feel okay to say I'm not okay? Um, and, and I'm grateful that from, from, from then, you know, say 10 years ago till now, you know, there are strides, there are, there are changes happening in the organizations. And I think that there's a long way to go still. I think that we're still uh, in a place where some of that kind of old school mentality of suck it up, push through it. You're supposed to be able to manage this. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it is it's still there. It's still present. Um, but you can see the changes. You can see that uh, one generationally, I think it helps because the generation coming up is more inclined to talk about their feelings. They're more inclined to be honest about um, things affecting them. And as long as they are in an organization where leadership accepts that and leadership welcomes that, then it's a much safer environment for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously always work to be done. Um, uh, you know, I look at organizations like Toronto, for instance, where you've got, you know, Chief Peg out there who uh, openly advocates for mental health and shares his journey. And, and I think that that's huge. And that's kind of always where my um, when I'm consulting with departments or when I'm consulting with uh, any organization, really, that's my messaging is it has to start at the top. It has to start with the leadership and it has to be action. It can't just be words. It can't be, here's your employee assistance program. It's available to you if you ever need it and moving on. It has to be, you're willing to sit down and participate in those discussions. You're willing to check in. You're willing to show that it's okay to be affected. Um, and I, I mean, I think, I think there's kind of an underlying, uh, I know in, in fire, um, there's kind of that underlying sense of family where, you know, after a call, you go and you sit down around the kitchen table and, you know, you work through it. And I think that there's enough people now in the department that kind of check in on each other. It might not be you know, vocal. It might not be out there for everybody to see. But I like to think that we're at a place now where there's enough people who understand um, the impact that, you know, what first responders and what frontline uh, healthcare workers, what they're being faced with every day, it, it can't not impact you. Um, I don't, it doesn't matter who you are, it's impacting you in some way. And perhaps you're somebody who has a very good coping strategy and somebody who has a very good support strategy or, or just manages it very well. And that's excellent. But there are people who don't. And those are the ones that we need to watch out for. Just switching gears a little bit. Um, I know, you know, I, we mentioned a couple of times about your, your life as a hockey player, as a goalie. And um, I don't know Is if this you're about to be a goalie joke. No, I don't have any. Go I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not funny enough to have goalie jokes. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm just no. There's a couple things I'm. I'm just curious about. Um, a whether you miss if you're if you miss hockey, like if you miss TV and watching, you know, being an athlete, watching sports. If that's something that you're, you know, that you're currently missing. And then the other the other question was around uh, the pro women's game right now. 
Um, oh, was just, you're going to make me go there, right? Um, well, I, I, you know, like That's looking okay. back, it's okay. looking, looking back, you know, you played in uh, a boys' system primarily, right? And uh, yeah, um, and then now you've. I mean, I'm sure you can take a lot of pride in the fact that uh, girls growing up playing hockey have so many more choices than you did uh, growing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but this seems to be like whatever side of the fence you sit on or if you're in the middle, mm-hmm. um, this seems to be a big, a, a gap, I guess, in the system one way or another. And uh, just wondering yeah. where, where you kind of sit on that. So um, first off, do I miss it? Absolutely. I miss competing. I miss, uh, I miss that. Uh, I miss the ice um, a lot. I retired from the CWHL want to say eight years ago now um and i I don't think when you're at a sport at that level you walk away without you know the the moments of man i still want to be on the ice um i'm fortunate i actually started playing with team canada's inline hockey team following that career so i've been able to participate at a world level uh, right up till last year so um I haven't completely lost that. And it was kind of cool, actually. I mean, I, I, when I left the CWHL, I left because I'd gotten to a place where managing where this was going and keeping up a schedule at a professional level of women's hockey without pay, having to hold a full-time job, getting married, knowing there was going to be a family. It just is not, it's not feasible. You can't, uh, you, you can't put five, six days a week into a sport and maintain that while you're trying to maintain everything else, which is, I guess, the most obvious argument around mm. um, what's happening with the women's sport right now. Um, it, so I have mixed feelings on the current state of, of the sport. Um, I, uh, I grew up playing guys hockey, yes. And I made the transition to women's hockey in 97, 98. Because at that time, Team Canada had already kind of uh, gotten in touch with me and basically said, we need you to transition to the women's game so we can kind of manage, see that. And and so that's what I did. And I I loved it. I played uh, one year in the junior system and then I joined uh, senior AAA, which if you follow the progression of that league, uh, it went senior AAA. It then became the NWHL um, in Canada. And then that league folded and they started the CWHL, which was a player-run league in Canada. Mm. Um, now the CWHL existed. That's That was my evolution through those into the CWHL. Um, and then there got to be kind of different people in places of leadership. So you had, you know, private sponsors who were involved in the NWHL, and then you had a group of girls who kind of took that league to a place where um, the product kind of spread out more. And and I just feel as though um, we've gotten to a place where there's too many kind of parallel discussions happening, which is unfortunate, because you have now a professional league in the u.s which is now the nwhl um and you have the cwhl who folded and started the players association and and have kind of been showcasing 
women's hockey uh, on a large stage. I mean, we saw them at the All-Star game. We see them, you know, kind of partnering up with some of the NHL teams and such. Um, there's so much that needs to be done. There's so much work that still needs to be done. So it's unfortunate that the dialogue kind of makes it seem as though there's these two different organizations that are fighting against each other that don't don't like each other, don't agree with each other. Um, and that's too bad because it, it's not that simple. It's not that easy. I think that when you come down to it at the end of the day, you know, th this is a tight knit community and this is a group of girls who, you know, have played with each other, have played against each other for their entire competitive careers. And, and you know, that's kind of people both in the, the past CWHL, the current association and the, the current NWHL. And I mean, so NWHL just announced that they're putting a team in Toronto, um, this upcoming season and uh, it's ruffling some feathers obviously because if the NWHL expands into Canada now and the CWHL has kind of forfeited everything that they had kind of built up to in order to try to achieve more I feel like there's conflicting goals um, mm. which ultimately to me is just hurting those who want to play I wish there was an ability for everybody to kind of sit down and come up with a strategic plan that makes sense from a business perspective, because I think that's the part that um, might be missed in all of this is it has to be marketable. It has to be sustainable. It has to be approached from a business perspective that is uh, feasible and is something that, you know, a league like the WNBA could um could exist in. And, and I mean, you know, we hear conversations about the NHL and, and having them be involved and having them manage a league. And quite frankly, if I'm the NW, or if I'm the NHL, I'm not going to take sides. And, and I think that that's where there's an issue. I think that you're not going to get the overall support from the NHL as long as there's perceived conflict underneath it. And so I think that ultimately what needs to happen is all parties need to sit down and find a way to, to compromise, meet in the middle, share ownership, share a vision, um, agree on a vision and move forward as one. Because I think when you've got that kind of, that there's just not enough from a business standpoint to, to make a go unless everybody's going to be on the same page because mm -hmm. ultimately I think you're going to want players from the existing end of WHL, the past CWHL, the existing association. I mean, you see people leaving the association now going back into the NWHL and it's just, to me, that's three different bodies and whether or not that that's the, and obviously I've been away from it a bit, so I, I don't have all of the fine points to speak to, which, which matters. Um, but from a, from a past player perspective, somebody who has a strong business background, um, I feel like, you know, it's going to hurt the game more than it's going to help it if they don't get on the same page and, and present on the same page. And at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of great movement um, in different areas by, by the different organizations. I just, I, I hope that sometime in the near future they can align and, or find somebody over mm -hmm. kind of overhead to kind of swallow it all up and, and, uh, put it together moving forward. Because at this point it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, 
it's tough to think that there's so many girls who are losing the opportunity to to do what they love and to play a game they love and to play a game that matters. I mean, mm. you know, when I when I look back at my journey, if I hadn't had what I'd had in hockey, I don't know that I'd still be here. I mean, a mm. lot of what I learned and a lot of my safe space was on the rink. And that was part of how I got through everything I got through. So mm. it's uh, to me, there's there's a lot more at stake here. And I, I really hope that all of the players find a way to you know, kind of put it together moving forward. And I also hope that they don't lose too much momentum because they were getting that momentum kind of coming into this whole COVID crisis. Mm. Um, you know, you were seeing a lot more of, of the association out there and the Dream Gap Tour and, and the games they were playing and showcasing women's hockey and how valuable it is as a sport. Um, and I really hope that that momentum's not lost because of the loss of this season and, and where they were going with it. Mm-hmm. And let's hope that let's hope that they can figure it out because it just seems um, we know so much about running sports like these uh, uh, football, baseball, hockey, basketball. They've they've spent centuries uh, trying to figure out what makes sense from a business perspective, and they, they've mm-hmm. seemed to, you know, a couple of labor stoppages uh, later, they've they've developed yeah. models. Because you see the MLS, a new league, you know, relatively young league. Um, they, you know, we know so much about what it takes to run a run a professional sports league, and so hopefully, yeah, they can. Because there's so much, like you're right, there's so much buzz and hype when every four years, mm-hmm. when it's Canada, USA, and and even you know the World Championships and different things like they, there's so much interest at that level, and um, because yeah, they're not yeah. working together, what um, you know, whoever's right, wrong, or indifferent, whatever the case may yeah, be. Yeah. They just, they have never been able to capitalize on the, the fact that come every four years, everybody's watching women's hockey and there's nothing to feed that appetite afterwards. And I think that that was always part of the risk of having a more player centric model was if you are relying only on the players from Team Canada and Team USA to be your market value and to be your business case, you're losing them for a year of centralization every year and you're losing them to the Olympics and to the, you know, the worlds and, and, and as you should be, I mean, I'm not suggesting they shouldn't be playing in those tournaments. Obviously they should be, but there also has to be a model that's sustainable when those players are gone. And it, it's, uh, I, I think that was part of the catch when it was, you know, fighting for that equality. And then there's so many loopholes you have to consider as well, because then you're trying to pay athletes. And if you're paying athletes, what does that do to those who are carted through national sport? Are they still eligible um, for the money they're getting? So then you're making decisions based on two different standards. Um, you know, well, we want to pay you know, this girl who's never going to be on the national program, but certainly has earned her place in this league, but we're not paying her enough for the national players to agree to it because then they lose their carding. And mm. so, I mean, I think there's so many underlying conversations there that have to be considered. And it's tough because the the optics of it from a, an outside perspective, exactly you're right, is it it from the outside perspective, if you haven't had the the knowledge or the conversation with people who are are privy to that information, it, it does look like a lot of people just kind of butting heads and, and not making it work. And um, it's unfortunate because there's a lot of great people in there who all have the right motives and, and all have the right, um, 
you know, and, and goals, I think, but until they kind of sit down and try to arrive at those goals together, I think we're, we're breaking apart a product that has to exist as a whole to be successful. And it's, uh, it's, it's tough in that perspective to watch it because again, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the girls who aren't on the ice and the girls who aren't getting to play the game. And, you know, the thousands of girls who graduate from university with nothing to look forward to beyond that, because there's no league sitting there for them to compete in. And it's the little girls who are seeing this happen. And, and yeah, it's great to see that, that dream gap tour. And it's great to see the players association, but you know, are we, are we doing enough to make it a broad enough uh, model that, a business person is going to look at it and say, yes, this is sustainable. This is a product I can buy into. Um, or are you buying into something that ultimately fails every four years because you lose X, Y, Z. What you um, sold them on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's tough. I mean, it, and it's tough too, because you know, the argument again is there. I'm, I'm a prime example of somebody who would have loved to have kept playing. Uh, I, I still compete compete internationally, uh, you know, on the inline stage. I, I certainly feel like I would be competent. I'm I'm getting old now. I get it, but um, you know, I certainly could have played for for more years um, had it been feasible, and it just wasn't feasible. And I'm also not one of those people who blindly is going to say we deserve everything that those in the NHL are getting right now because, you know, the reason that they can afford to pay the people in the NHL what they're paying the guys in the NHL is because what that business model and that product brings in in revenue enables them to do that. And I do think that the women deserve much more than what they're getting. And I think that they deserve way more financial support and way more stability in their ability to, um, continue to build that product with enough financial support that they're not, you know, personally losing because of it. I mean, the bottom line is, is you got to pay your mortgage. And if, mm. if practicing two hours a day and traveling to, you know, Calgary or Montreal or Boston, or it is your whole weekend and you're, you know, you're basically choosing, you know, life or hockey. Mm. And that's not a fair position to be in either. Mm. But you know, it has to be that gradual growth, I think. I don't think that I I could say that, you know, I, I couldn't hand somebody Sidney Crosby's contract if if they're not bringing that revenue in as well. But we have to put these girls in a position to be able to put forth a product to bring in revenue, you know, to give them the chance to do that without financial support. That doesn't that doesn't happen. So I'm so grateful to see all of the, you know, the big names and the guys in the NHL stepping up and supporting it because that's going to matter. That helps. And, and, and you're right. I mean, you look at the viewership and, and at the Olympics and at the worlds and, and people are interested. People want to see them play. People want to see the game. Um, but yeah, I just, I hope everybody can get aligned and put forth enough of a package in, in its entirety that people understand the value of it because it's there. It's just a matter of, of getting it together properly. Hopefully they can find something to, to build on. Um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's great to talk with so many um, different topics in one, one sitting. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, thank you for being so honest and uh, being accessible and um, really appreciate you taking the time and be safe uh, throughout the pandemic. Yeah. And I mean, obviously I would love to kind of mirror that, uh, 
that shout out to your staff. I mean, as as you said, they're not exactly the they don't get the same the same gratitude. And I mean, I can speak for firsthand that there's a lot of mental health workers out there that are dealing with populations who are absolutely in crisis. And um, you know, they're absolutely essential. We need them. We're losing people. You know, as I said, I can I can unfortunately. Uh, account for seven suicides in two weeks just in one community so uh, it's uh we're in a place right now where the work they're doing more than ever it, it matters so I, i'm super grateful for everything they're doing as well and i hope that they're getting that recognition because it's deserved well we all appreciate that thank you kendra have a great day yeah you as well take care Begin.